We've been studying the parables of Jesus as found in the Gospels. Last Sunday, we looked at the third of three parables on the matter of prayer, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray. One of the things that I have stressed in this series on the parables is that they are theocentric. That is, they tell us about God. They reveal to us his person and his nature. But this is not usually the way that we read them or that people read them. This is particularly true in the parables on prayer. After all, prayer is something we do. Praying is something that we do. And as Jesus is telling us about something we are to do, it would make sense that he is talking more about us than he is about God. But as we have seen, prayer is our part in a conversation, with the critical question being, who began the conversation? This is, I think, the critical question, and how we answer this will determine how we view prayer. If we believe that we begin the conversation and God responds to us, then when we read these parables on prayer, then then certainly we will see them as being primarily about us. If, on the other hand, we believe that God began the conversation and that we are, in fact, responding to him in prayer, um, then I think we read them in a very different way. And it becomes vitally important to know to whom we are speaking. By the way, I think even if we believe we began the conversation, um, it's important to know who it is we're talking to. But I think the focus then tends to be on us. Um, It tends to be on us. If we think we began the conversation, if we think there's a secret to getting what it is we want from God, if we think there's a way to get God to give us what we want. And then the three parables become a matter of technique, or they're viewed that way. Um, In reality, that's not what's going on at all. They are telling us about God the Father. In the parable of the uh, the friend who came at midnight, Jesus gives this parable when he is asked by his disciples, teach us how to pray. So you might think, well, of course, then this parable is, in fact, about how we pray. It's about us. It's about the disciples and not about God the Father. But in fact, Jesus tells us of the Father That in the same way, one would not put off a neighbor who comes to him at midnight, even though it is an inconvenience. God the Father hears us and he responds. He is the one, in fact, who creates the situation that causes us to call out to him in prayer. And then he responds. In the parable of the persistent widow, the point is not so much the persistence of the widow. And so in many ways, the parable, I think, is misnamed but rather the fact that God the Father is not like the unjust judge who really doesn't care about people at all, but finally gives in because he's been worn down by this widow. No, God the Father will act on behalf of his people. It may not be immediately, but it will be quickly. And then last week we looked at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the point might seem to be that we, when we pray, should not be filled with self-righteousness, but rather with humility, because after all, the Pharisee is seen as someone who comes to God to detail his righteousness, to list his keeping of the law and beyond what the law requires, and to point out that he's not like other people, particularly this tax collector. The tax collector is seen as marked by humility. He asks God to be merciful to him. I think what is being pointed out by Jesus in these parables is how each of these men viewed God. The attitudes of these two men reveal two images of God. One presupposed by the Pharisee is completely false. The other one is hoped for 
by the tax collector. It is correct. You see, God is not impressed with what we do, our pious acts, our feelings of superiority. He is a God of mercy who responds to the needs of those who are in need. In thinking through this matter in the past week, I became convinced that the Pharisee did not see God or view God as a God of mercy, even though this is found throughout the Old Testament. Somehow the Pharisee forgot what David wrote in Psalm 30. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Or what he wrote in Psalm 41. I said, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. I don't know if you've noticed in reading through the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Psalms, differing translations, uh, that uh, some translations have the word mercy and then others will have the word love. For example, in Psalm 136, in which each verse has a response, his love endures forever in the NIV, in the King James and in the ESV, his mercy endures forever Mercy is fundamental, I think, in the revelation of who God is. If you read the book of Psalms, almost a hundred times we read of God's mercy. And yet somehow the Pharisee had forgotten about this. I think, in fact, because he did not want to be the recipient of any mercy. To be a recipient would be to acknowledge that he had a need. I mentioned this to Ben the other night. We were talking. I recently finished rereading The Lord of the Rings. And I was struck toward the end of the book by the rejection of one of the main characters of any mercy from anyone. If you know the Lord of the Rings at all, the character is Saruman, who was a wizard, but he allied himself with Sauron. He is defeated. He is kept as a prisoner in his tower, Orthanc, uh, by Treebeard, but then later on released. And he is met up by Gandalf and the others after they've come back from the field of victory, so to speak. And Gandalf tells Saruman, you should have stayed in the tower. You would have been better off. If you had waited at Orthanc, you would have seen him, that is the king, and he would have shown you wisdom and mercy. Then all the more reason to have left sooner, said Saruman, for I desire neither of him. I don't want his mercy. And then in the next chapter, uh, the scouring of the Shire, There is, and I don't know if you've read this, but there is a point at which Saruman tries to kill Frodo after Frodo has shown him kindness. He has given him leave to leave the Shire without any harm, and he and he tries to kill him. And and other people want they want to kill Saruman for this, and Frodo will have none of it. And then Saruman says, "You have robbed my revenge of sweetness, and now I must go hence in bitterness, in debt to your mercy. I hate it and you." In many ways, as I read this this past week, I thought, this is the Pharisee. This is a Pharisee who wants nothing of God's mercy. Rather, he speaks of how wonderful he is, because in many ways he thinks he's begun the conversation. The tax collector knows that God began the conversation by saying, these are the things you're supposed to do and the things you're not supposed to do. And if you do these things that you're not supposed to do, you are a sinner. But I'm a God of mercy. And the tax collector responds to God saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. To ask for mercy is to acknowledge that you have sinned, that you have fallen short, 
It is to be in God's debt, and the Pharisee will have none of it. So in these three parables on prayer, we come to learn that God will not make excuses to keep from helping his children. He will do what is right by them. And we see that God is not like the unjust judge who does not love others, who does not necessarily desire justice, but really needs to be worn down by our prayers. God will bring justice because he is a God of justice. And last week we saw that God is a God of mercy. The tax collector went home justified. This is the surprise ending to the parable that we find in many of Jesus' parables. His listeners, I don't think, were prepared for this. They think of the Pharisee as righteous and the tax collector as a sinner. And that Jesus says that he goes, the tax collector goes home justified. Today we look at two parables, double parables or twin parables. This is a device we find Jesus using from time to time, putting parables together that are twins, but as one writer put it, not identical twins. So in, in Matthew, for example, we have the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl, one of my favorite, the pearl of great price. And then the parables of the tower builder and the king going to war about counting the cost. And then the parables of the wheat and the weeds and then of the net. We also find him doing three parables together. And we looked at a couple of these several weeks back. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. The parables we're looking at today are also found in Matthew. I've chosen to use uh, Luke's account. And the first one at least is found in Mark's, um, but not, uh, not the second one. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 18, four short verses. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. By the way, a large amount of flour there is 60 pounds of flour. We'll come back to that in a few moments. As I've suggested, these are twin parables, but they are not identical. They should be read together, studied together. That's what we're doing today. But each of them has something slightly different to say about the kingdom of God. I imagine perhaps that one of the first questions that comes to mind is, okay, These are about the kingdom of God. And I thought you said that all parables are theocentric. Jesus begins this section with double questions, a very Jewish thing to do. What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? If, in fact, some might say parables are theocentric, shouldn't Jesus have said, what is God like? Or what shall I compare him to? But let's stop a minute and think. What is the kingdom of God? It's a phrase we may take for granted, but what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's saving rule. It is his work of grace and administration. It is the administration of his will among his people. You may remember that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. These two things always go together. But the kind of things that the Jews of that day associated with the kingdom of God were quite different than what Jesus was saying. They thought in terms of military power and national triumph, visible glory. So we hear Jesus speaking time and time again about the kingdom of God. But in doing so, he speaks of the nature of the king, the ruler of that kingdom. 
I think in our time, we put a disconnect between king and kingdom. Uh, we don't think that the personality or, or the character of the king necessarily reflects on his subjects or his kingdom. Um, God is not a politician in which we hear one thing from him and see something very different, in which the personality of leadership may in fact have little or no impact on the subjects. History is filled with examples of evil kings with good kingdoms and good subjects and good kings with evil subjects. But I am convinced that when Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, what he intends for us to see is that this is who God is and it is reflected in what he does among his people. It is reflected in his mercy and his grace among his people. It is the kingdom of God. And so I'm convinced he is telling us about the nature of God. It is a theocentric parable or a double parable. The first one is the parable of the mustard seed. In both Jewish and Greco-Roman culture, the mustard seed was used as a proverb for something that was very small. Um, in fact, we have evidence that rabbis used it as a metaphor for something that was almost imperceptible. It was so tiny. Um, now, let's be clear about something because people might get upset. There are, in fact, smaller seeds than the mustard seed. Okay? But since we are dealing with a proverbial use, as one writer puts it, anxiety about issues of accuracy or out of bounds. The mustard seed is about one millimeter in diameter. It takes about 725 to 760 mustard seeds to make one gram. That is one twenty-eighth of an ounce. They're very small. Thus, the, it is used as a proverb for something that is small. You put it in the ground. It germinates within five days. It grows rather quickly and can grow to a height of 10 feet. It has large leaves, particularly at the base and at the top, smaller leaves, but more branches where the birds can rest and uh, stay. The point, I think, basically is that something small turns into something big. It grows into something big. The second parable in verses 20 and 21 um, is, about the par is about yeast or leaven. The first parable might have surprised Jesus' listeners because that's not what they're expecting. But then they might like the ending because it turns out into something big. So, okay, it's okay if it starts out something small. After all, the Jewish people began with Abraham and Sarah and then became a mighty nation. So, okay, that's good. But this second parable, I think, did not surprise them. I think it was shocking to them. Um, just a side note before we go on. The NIV and other translations have the word yeast. And this is, this is unfortunate. Uh, the ESV and others have leaven, which is much more accurate. When we think of yeast, most people think of yeast, we think of a packet you buy at the grocery store that you mix in with the dough. Leaven is something quite different. Leaven is a piece of dough that comes from the last batch of dough that you put together. So if you're making bread, you, you knead the dough and everything, and then you take a little bit and you keep it aside so that the next time that you make bread, you put that in, and it has, if you wish, the yeast in it, but it is the leaven, it is not yeast as such. In the Old Testament... Leaven was viewed negatively because in the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews were to get rid of all leaven from their houses. 
They were, in fact, to take a lantern and look through all the corners of their house, almost a symbolic action, to get rid of any leaven that might be left in their house. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uses the metaphor of Passover to speak of the fact that there needs to be church discipline. There's a man who is living in sin. He writes, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old leaven that you may be a new batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old leaven, with malice and wickedness, but with the bread without leaven, the bread of sincerity and truth. I think one could make a case that leaven is, generally speaking in the scriptures, used as a metaphor for sin. The burnt offerings, the sin offerings, no leaven was to be included with them. But interestingly enough, neither was honey. And no one thinks negatively about honey. Um, There were offerings, however, the fellowship offerings and others, in which you were to give bread with leaven. So leaven in itself is not evil, something that must be avoided in certain situations. Yes, in Passover, because leaven, like yeast, you need time to let the dough rise. Unleavened bread, you put the stuff together, you throw it in the oven, it's ready, and you can take off and leave Egypt as the Israelites did that night. But we actually don't have to leave the Gospel of Luke to look at what Paul has to say or to go to the Old Testament to see that leaven is oftentimes seen negatively. If you have your Bibles open to chapter 13, look back at chapter 12 in Luke. Luke chapter 12. In the very first verse, Luke 12.1, Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another. Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And again, this should be leaven. Be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So leaven is hypocrisy. And now what is the kingdom of God like? It's like leaven in flour. You can see where people might be shocked and perhaps even confused. I think Jesus did this quite deliberately because, in fact, their expectations were not being met in him. When he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they were expecting something far different than a man from Nazareth going around and teaching and healing. So what do these parables teach us? What is it that Jesus is trying to convey as he speaks these parables? I would suggest to you the the following lines of thought. First of all, the work of God, as reflecting his nature, may seem to be imperceptible. It may, in fact, be quite tiny, or small, and yet the result might be something quite big, just like the mustard seed. We see this supremely in the incarnation and the life of Jesus. Think for a moment. We live after the fact. If you wish, in the light of the mustard seed, we're thinking after it's already grown. Let's go back to the beginning, when it's still a tiny mustard seed. That Jesus is born in Bethlehem, a small town, and not the capital. He is raised in a small town in Nazareth, and not in Jerusalem. He has no formal training, as far as we know. He selected unlikely candidates to be his followers. 
He was rejected by the religious establishment of that day and he died as a common criminal. With another criminal, by the way, being chosen over him by the crowd. The crowd has a choice. Who do you want to be released? Jesus or Barabbas? And the crowd goes with Barabbas. And yet this man, who could have been seen as insignificant and probably was by so many, was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul writes about this in the familiar passage in Philippians 2. Who being very, in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. One might even say a mustard seed. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is in the incarnation that we see something tiny, almost imperceptible, covering the planet. One writer put it this way, like the cross, the mustard seed parable is a challenge to human perception and judgment about smallness and significance. We see through a glass darkly and too often fail to recognize a seed planted by God. We should expect and implement mustard seed thinking, neither disparaging insignificance nor doubting what God can do and does do with small beginnings. The Christological implications of the parable should not be ignored. It is in Jesus' word and work that the kingdom has made its entrance. From something tiny, we see something grand, the kingdom of God. But this is not what the people expected, and oftentimes it's not what we expect. We want grand things, and Jesus speaks of a mustard seed. The second thing I think Jesus would have us learn is that God's presence and power are pervasive and penetrating. In the parable of the leaven, the woman is said to have mixed the leaven in with a great deal of flour, about 60 pounds of flour, enough to make at least 40 loaves of bread. Um, I defer to the bakers in the congregation, those who bake bread. I have no expertise in this area. Um, but I, I must confess that it does sound like an awful lot of flour for making bread. And yet this leaven is mixed in and is worked through the whole dough. It affects everything. And tied in with the first parable in which something that is imperceptible and seemingly insignificant can in fact have repercussions beyond its initial size. I think in this parable we see the same thing. That little bit of dough from the last batch is brought in with 60 pounds of flour and it is worked through the whole dough. I think the biggest problem we have in embracing this view is that it simply seems to lack evidence in our day and time. If anything, if you were to say to me, What is something that is penetrating and pervasive in our culture? I'd be more inclined to say evil. In fact, it seems to have impacted every aspect of our society. 
we might question that God's power, God's presence is among us, that it can in fact have an impact or an effect. Perhaps in the back and in the past it did. When we read about church history and we read of great revivals, yes, it happened in the past, but but now it, it doesn't seem likely. But this leads us to the third line of thinking that I'd have you think about. God's glory and God's might, his power, are often hidden. If you take the two parables together, you will notice that they deal with things that are hidden. The mustard seed is buried in the ground. I can no longer see it because it's buried until it begins to grow, it germinates, and then it becomes something quite large. And the leaven sort of disappears into the batch of dough because it is worked in through the whole batch. But the time comes when they will be revealed. When you have a ten foot tall plant that comes from the mustard seed. And when the dough actually begins to rise because the leaven has been worked through all the flour. This is the glory and the might of God that may in fact seem to be tiny and imperceptible, and in fact we may question its presence or that it is pervasive and penetrating in our lives. One writer put it this way, The forests do not clap their hands at our approach. The mountains and hills do not break forth before us, singing to welcome to the sons and, and welcome to the sons and heirs of the King of Glory. In other words, creation doesn't say, The Christians are here. The people of God are here. Rather, the whole creation groans because our sonship is hidden, waiting for the manifestation of it. A cross lies heavy on our shoulder rather than a crown shining on our head. We must acknowledge that things are oftentimes not as they seem, and particularly when it comes to the things of God. I think one of the things that Jesus is trying to get across to these people is this is who God is. This is how God works. And you people have a whole list of expectations and God is not meeting your expectations and therefore you begin to doubt him or you turn against him. You go your own way. I think if we would try to make application or work this through in our lives today, I think we should begin by acknowledging that we are Americans. And that affects the way that we think. We think in terms of big things. After all, we are the superpower in the world today. And like it or not, even as Christians, being American has affected us. It does affect us. And so we like to think in terms of the big things, the visible things. And when we read about a mustard seed, we think, well, that's rather quaint. Or leaven in... in in, in the flour, in my first thought is I, I, we don't bake. We go to the grocery store and buy bread. And we think, well, this, this is one of those quaint or two of those quaint little stories that Jesus told to country folk back in the first century. I think it should speak to us as loudly as it did to those in that time. You may remember some time ago we looked at the matter of Christian hospitality. And one of the things that we said toward the end of the series is that hospitality is something that the world does as well. Um, There's sort of a hospitality industry. And sometimes as Christians, we think 
okay, we're going to have to outdo what the world is doing. And so if the world is doing this, then we have to be something even greater. Um, But as we saw, as Christians, we are called to be faithful in small things. Hospitality is a practice and a discipline. And it asks us to do what is seen by the world to be inconsequential. Think of Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Those seem like perhaps inconsequential things. But it is what we are called to do. Hospitality is a practice of small gestures. If, in fact, you look at the history of Christian hospitality, not simply in the past, but even today, those who are marked by great hospitality will tell you time and time and time again that it deals with helping those who are seen as inconsequential, those who are poor, those who are seen as insignificant and vulnerable. Our temptation is to want to think of the mustard seed at the end of the parable where it's huge. That's where we want to start. When in fact the parable starts with the seed and then with the little leaven that is worked into the dough. Hospitality that we are to practice is based on what God has done for us. God is always giving to us and we are always receiving from him. So we need to ask ourselves before we leave here today, who is the God that we worship? Who is the God that we worship? Is he only seen in big things and spectacular things? Or is his way oftentimes imperceptible and hidden? Will his way one day work its way through society? Forget that. Will it one day work its way through my life, through your life? Something that starts out small, will it work its way? Will it penetrate and be pervasive? I'm reminded of the story of Elijah when he fled to Mount Horeb from Jezebel. Let me read to you. This is from uh, 1 Kings 19. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. It isn't exactly like the Pharisee, but Elijah's talking about himself. Look at what I've done and what these terrible people are trying to do to me. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. It's an amazing thing to hear. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? It was in the gentle whisper 
it was, if you wish, in a mustard seed of a voice. Do we hear him? Do we hear him? Are we looking for something spectacular? How should we view the kingdom of God? What should we compare it to? It's like a mustard seed. It's like a bit of leaven that is put into dough. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess, we believe that you created the heavens and the earth. You sustain all things by the power of your will. And so we have certain expectations of your power and your work. We want to see great things. But far too often you are not in the wind, you are not in the earthquake or the fire. It is the still small voice, the gentle whisper. Sometimes we wonder, what are you doing? What are you doing in my life? I thank you for these two parables that remind us of the nature of your working in human history and the life of the church. Sometimes imperceptible, but yet pervasive and penetrating. Sometimes hidden, but one day will be revealed. We have gathered to worship you, but I wonder if our vision of you is different than who you really are. By your Spirit, may you draw each one of us closer to yourself. And may we see you a bit clearer, though we see through a glass darkly at this point. May we come to see that the things that are seen as inconsequential, insignificant, small, tiny, hidden, that in fact may be your doing. And may we trust you. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you in spirit and in truth. That you have gathered us. You have fed us. We are your people. I thank you for your hospitality this day. I thank you for your love. And may we reflect that to those we meet in the coming days. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. And may we be lights in a world of darkness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.